So yes, no, thank you for coming again. And those who are listening online, uh, our second lesson of historical evidence which backs up the scriptures. And we looked at last week that, you know, even as a skeptic, you can choose not to believe what is written in the Bible, but you cannot argue and say that we can't trust what is written, or what we, you cannot say that we can't know what was originally written, because when you look at all the historical evidence and what is used to judge historical documents, it absolutely passes the test. And the Bible is a collection of historical documents, and that is just what they are. That is factual. So at the surface, a skeptic may not believe them, but... We can absolutely trust at least that what we, what we read today is what was originally written and, and stuff. Uh, tonight, I want to deal with two areas. Um, we're going to look at tonight, uh, number one, uh, the, I, I, I preached a little bit about this in a sermon about a month ago, but I'm going to look at this in really more detail tonight, the big deal of Bible contradictions, and uh, also looking at other evidence from history to back up things that the Bible writes and stuff, archaeology more specifically. And just This is on your page, but I like to keep showing this, that like I didn't just come up with this stuff. This is not something that I've just sat around in my house and just... And, and yes, of course I re- use the Bible. You've got to start with the Bible. But there, are, there is so much scholarly evidence out there to back up the things that, um, that I've read and that, that, that back up the things that we're going to talk about tonight. And they're on your sheets and you can look into them. So um, when going to the Scriptures... Tonight, we're going to look right, right at the next big argument, and this is huge, and I still hear it all the time. The Bible has contradictions, therefore it cannot be trusted. Well, whenever you study any document, any documentation from history, there's, there's what is called Aristotle's dictum, and this is what it, it states. It states that the benefit of the doubt is to be given to the document itself, not assigned by the critic himself. In other words, one must listen to the claims of the document under analysis and not assume fraud unless, and I have it up here, you can't assume fraud unless the author disqualifies themselves through clear contradictions or known factual errors. So right away, people attack the scriptures, and we talked about this last week. And to be, to be real, people attack the scriptures because it claims to be the word of God because it claims that there is a, a real right and a wrong, and it claims that we are all accountable to an almighty God. That is, the, that is it, and, it and, and people can have all these excuses, but that is it. If the Bible was just talking about fancy poetry from back in the day or whatever, no one would be attacking it. You know, just, you know what I'm saying. Um, but yeah, so when you look at an ancient document, you have to give the benefit of the doubt, of the doubt to the document and, and actually analyze it. So... Does the Bible have contradictions and errors? And I challenge you to do this, because I remember a clear conversation I had with someone. I've had a few conversations with the Bible contradictions, but someone was talking to me and brought this up, and I just said, listen, can we talk about some, list to me a few of these contradictions, and I'd like to talk to you about it. And the person, you know, looked at me and just said, well, I really don't know any, but I've just been told that the Bible is contradictions. And to be honest with you, like our society and really human nature, a lot of people that believe the Bible is contradictions do not have examples to back them up. They just hear it. Now, not everyone's like that. People will, get, will give you examples of supposed contradictions, and we're going to dig a lot deeper into those contradictions uh, tonight. So a lot, a lot of what I'm going to be going over is a lot of examples, but I want you to see these examples so if people come at you with them, you guys can understand what is going on in the Scriptures. Um, right away, the first thing is... 
Judas's death. You might have heard this if, if you're familiar with the accounts from from Matthew chapter. Um, I always hate it. it's either Matthew chapter 26 or 27. Um, it says that Judas hanged himself. Um, if you read in the book of Acts, Peter is describing Judas's death, and he says that Judas fell. And it says that he fell head first and that his body like burst open. Kind of gets a little, little graphic right there. Um, so it, it appears when you read the two accounts that there's a contradiction. So did Judas hang himself or did he jump like off a cliff to his death? But in reality, Peter, first of all, there would be a clear contradiction if Peter said that he jumped to his death. It didn't say he jumped. It said he fell. If you read the Greek, it says he fell. Here's what's going on here. And people have... And there's been scholars and archaeologists who have um, examined the, the and like I said, the supposed sites, we don't know 100%, but the supposed sites of Judas's hanging and the field of blood that he bought and everything. And what, it, what scholars have said has probably happened is Judas, here's the resolution, Judas probably hung himself from a very high, either cliff or a very high tree, and obviously his body was found, and either the rope broke or someone cut, cut him down, and just in the process of gravity, from the high level, his body had enough time as it fell to turn, you know, and his body was heavy enough, and it, he hit head first, his body hit head first as his body turned and, you know, split open, which, uh, like I said, it's kind of graphic right there. But there really is, like I said, there's not a contradiction. If Peter does say, use the word jumped, yeah, we got a problem. But, that, but once again, you got to read the wording in the scriptures whenever you get into these kind of things. Another example, I kind of touched on this a month ago, but demon-possessed man or men? There's, a sto- there's an account of Jesus delivering a man from demon um, possession in, found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's uh, gospel accounts. Um, in the gospels of Mark and Luke, they use the term a demon-possessed man. In Matthew's account, he specifically says that there were two. So right away, of course, you say, like, here's the deal. People will say, well, there's a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. It's a difference. There's a big, there's a, <laughs> there's a big difference between a contradiction and a difference in eyewitness accounts. So right away, we got, we got to look at the account, and I encourage you to, once again, go home and study this on your own. When you read this account of this demon-possessed man, the stories are all the same. The accounts are all the same. He was possessed. He was, the demons like gave him like, kind of like some kind of supernatural strength. No one went near the area. Jesus delivered him or the two men. The, swine, the demons went to the, swamp, uh, the pigs. They drowned themselves. People all came out. They were freaked out and said, Jesus. And you'd think they'd be like, whoa, dude, Jesus, you're awesome. Say, they were like, no, Jesus, get, get lost. Isn't that weird? Like, Jesus delivers, the, del- heals this man who you were all afraid of, and they're, and they're like, yeah, leave. But anyway, the accounts are all the same. The only difference is, is was it a man or was it two men? Once again, the resolution is, I said all this, the resolution is this, is that Matthew simply just gives more detail of the account. There would be a contradiction if Mark or Luke said that there was only a man. But they don't say that. They just say there was a man. And were they correct? Well, yes. And let me ask you, does it, ma- does it change the story? Does it change the account of what happened, whether it was one or two? Of course not. Because what's the, pur- I'm going to touch on this a little more, but what's the purpose of this account that, that they're trying to tell us? 
Well, that Jesus has power over the demonic realm and he can bring light into the darkest situations. That theology is not touched at all. So before getting into, I'm going to give some more examples, but there are some things we need to consider when we um, study the biblical, um, I said this already, amount doesn't change the, the point. When we question ancient passages, there's rules and there's things that we got to look at before when we're talking about contradictions. So you have them on your page, I'm going to kind of go over them bit by bit. So whenever we look at the Bible, there's a, there's a lot of things here, but we're going to get into them that we need to consider. And once again, if you have any questions, please, please, please stop me. I know we don't want me to talk forever, but really, if you have real questions, I want to be able to answer them tonight, and I talk really fast, so I'll remember to breathe. And Anyway, let's just go on. So the first thing that we need to look at when studying an ancient passage is this. We have to remember that the unexplained does not mean that the document is false. In short, if we can't find an answer on the surface to a question in Scripture, well, number one, if it is the Word of God, God may not want us to know uh, the answer because it isn't that important. There's actually, um, well, you read the book of Revelations and some of the prophets, there's a lot of things they talk about. There's um, a great example in the book of Revelation where John the, John the Apostle is writing down um, something that uh, there was, there was something called these um, these voices that thundered this message, and John was writing it down, and the angel's like, Mm-mm, "No, don't write that down. That's not for what people to know." The point that I'm saying is, there's sometimes God may give us a little hint of something, but it's not that important. Um, and what's interesting too is that there's a double standard in in, in the scientific world when it comes to the scriptures and, and this. Um, in their debate with Ken Ham and Bill Nye, if you guys are familiar with that, Ken Ham is the president of Answers in Genesis, and you guys all know Bill Nye, the science guy. Um, well, Ken Ham just was trying to bring up to Bill Nye a lot of unanswered questions in, in science. For, for in other words, science has these theories, not facts, theories about the Big Bang, the origin of the universe, but the big question is, well, okay, well, you got this ball at the beginning. Where did it come from? Where does consciousness come from? And there's a lot of other questions. And, and he, was, he was talking to him about it. Bill Nye's response was always the same when it came up to questions. He goes, that's a fascinating question. And I'm excited that we don't know the answer to the question because the journey, the journey to find out, which, okay, fair answer. But what I'm saying, the double standard is this. When it comes to Christianity, when it comes to us not knowing a question about the scriptures or something like that, the finger is pointed in our direction and say, aha, see, you don't know the answer. Bible's false. So just because something is not, uh, it, there's, not a, 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 there's not a consensus as to what the answer is doesn't mean it's not, uh, it, you know, the mean that it's fake. Um, second thing we got to consider, fallible interpretations. This is a big one. Fallible interpretations do not mean fallible revelation. Um, for example, many Christians, you know, we read Genesis 1. We read Genesis 1, the seven days of crea- uh, six days of creation, the, the seventh day. Many Christians right now try to, are trying to fit evolution into Genesis because scientists say that evidence debunks that. That's not true. Scientists will tell us there's a contradiction between the physical world and God's word. And history has, sh- but, and here's the thing, history has shown us, see, people may interpret, try and interpret, twist and, tr- and interpret God's word to, to say what it really doesn't mean to say, and people will be like, oh, ha! The scriptures are false because, you know, because of this person's interpretation. Well, what I'm trying to say is that just because someone is wrong about an interpretation of the scriptures doesn't mean that God didn't inspire the passage. Does that make sense? 
And, and we know in history is littered with evidence of people that, and even Christians, that were certain of things, but they were wrong. You know, Earth was the center of the universe. Galileo was persecuted by the church because they thought, they said that that's not true, and, and they're wrong. They actually thought the world was flat at one point. And here's the other thing. Listen, there's cult leaders all the time that twist the scriptures. We, 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 I've had my run-ins with um, certain uh, cult leaders and stuff and, and people, and it's just amazing how they twist the scriptures. Some people will say, well, see that? There's so many different interpretations of the scriptures. It's false. Well, no. The scriptures say what they say. Just because a fallible human being gives a wrong interpretation doesn't mean that God Almighty didn't inspire the passage People are still human. People still make errors and mistakes. That doesn't mean the document is false. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay. The next thing you need is understanding the context of a passage. Pastor Jim, I loved, uh, I love years ago, it's a great example you've always given me, is Psalm 14 says there is no God. Well, we, if you know Psalm 14, it says, the, the fool says in their heart there is no God. No, the Bible is not denouncing God, but but you could easily take that out of context. Dot, 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 there is no God. See? No. Um, see, when, when looking at a passage, we have to understand the culture and what was going on that inspired the writing at the time. An example an example of this is that in, in Philippians, here's, here's a great example. It's a great verse, so I don't want to, but the famous verse, we can do all, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, why do I bring that verse up? You're like, well, wait a minute. Uh, in, in the context of the passage, generally it's preached, and it does, and it is true that we, if God tells us something, we can absolutely do all things through Christ who gives us strength. But in the context of the, of the, the entire passage, Paul's actually talking about contentment. He's saying, I've learned to live on a lot. I've learned to live on a little. And then he goes on and on about contentment, and then he ends it with, and I, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So I'm just saying that, like, what, what, and, and that's not like a, um, a contradiction right there, I think, but just to give you an example of, 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 of studying uh, the context of a passage, like, that's, that's really a good example. So in any, in any case, you have to do that. And here's the thing, and I put, oh, okay. So when, so when you're examining the context of, a, of, of any Bible passage, you have to say, what is the main point of the passage? Now, here, here's a good one. The resurrection accounts. People point to these all the time for, say, for, that there's a clear contradiction. And the three main contradictions, well, differences are this. The number of women. Luke says that there was at least five, six. And John, he just mentions Mary Magdalene and Mark and Matthew are in between. Angels, they go between one and two. The chronology of the events are a little different. But here's the thing. Once you get analyzed, what's the context of the passage? What's the passage trying to say overall? The context of the resurrection passages are this. Jesus rose from the dead. And here, Now, here's the fun, funny thing about the resurrection passages I want to point out. They want to point out those differences, right? Number one, none of the gospel writers say that only this many women went to the tomb. If any of them did, contradiction, but they don't do that. None of them say there are only this many angels show up. If they did, contradiction, but none of them say that. None of, no one ever focuses on the similarities of the resurrection accounts. There's more similarities than there is differences. Women showed up early at the tomb. Okay, John just mentions Mary Magdalene. There's a lot. Tomb's empty. Angels showed up. Jesus is proclaimed to be alive. They go run and tell the disciples. Jesus shows up to the women. Nope, that's me. And I'm not going to take it. Don't worry. Oh, it's my father? Okay. 
It's okay. I really thought it was me at first. Um, so anyway, but no, but there's a lot. There's more similarities in the, the resurrection accounts than there is differences. So why does John only mention Mary Magdalene when there was more women? Because John, most likely, John wanted to focus on her particular story. Do you know what I mean? Like he saw, and when he was writing, when he, when God was inspiring, he was remembering this. He just wanted to focus on her particular story with Jesus. But he doesn't say she's the only one. He just says, and he, he wasn't lying. He says Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Well, she did. We just get other details that there were other women with her and stuff. And here, here's another quick, quick difference. Two gospels say the women showed up. Two gospels say women showed up, told the disciples Peter and John went to the tomb. People are like contradiction. No, there's not a contradiction there. The other two gospel accounts don't say that the, the, no other, no one else went to the tomb. The other two writers just gave more detail to the events, you know. And that's the other thing: none of the none of the gospel writers ever say this is definitely the order in which things happen. Do you know what I mean? Like once again, if they did that, there might be a contradiction. But once again, the main point is the same in all four gospels. Jesus rose, and there's way more similarities than there are differences. Did I put my? Yes, I did. So anyway, but like I said, you analyze the, the context of the gospel of the gospel account. There's no resurrection. There's well, there's no contradiction. There's definitely a resurrection. We believe in Jesus. Um, so yes, that that's the main that's the main context when you're looking at that. Make sure I'm at the. Uh... Oh, here's another good one. I had to put this in in here. Context. When was Jesus crucified? She might not know this. Okay. So Mark chap- Mark's gospel says that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. Okay. Matthew says that darkness occurred over all the earth at the sixth hour. John says that Jesus was before Pilate at the sixth hour. So okay, wait a minute here. We need to back up. What's going on? This does look like it might be a potential contradiction. Not when you study, when you realize, when you that not everyone at that time frame measured time the same. People of Israel, the Jewish people, measured time starting at six a.m. in the morning, sunrise. That was a Jewish day. The Romans were, are, were a lot of what we have as far as our time and calendars actually come from the Romans. Believe it or not, the Roman calendar, including our twenty-four hour day. Romans, believe it or not. They started at midnight, like us. John wrote his gospel way, way later from the others, like at around 98 to 100 AD. My point being is that Matthew, Mark and Matthew were focusing their gospel more towards their Jewish audience, giving Jewish time frame. So Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. John, writing years later, he was writing... I mean. The Gospels were all meant for a broader audience, but he, he had a, a broader audience in mind, so he used the timetable of the empire, not just the Jews, which was midnight. The sixth hour to John wasn't noon, was 6 a.m. Jesus was before Pilate at 6 a.m. in the morning of this, uh, for his trial, and then was crucified three hours later. There isn't a contradiction. When you look at the history and what was going on, the context shows you there isn't a contradiction. Mark... Matthew were writing with a with a particular context in mind to a, to an, their their, Jew, their Jewish brothers. John was just thinking in the context of the entire empire, and he wrote with that in mind. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. All righty. So next one. Oh, I I forget that I put that stuff up there. The next one, real quick. So questioning biblical passages. Interpret a difficult passage in light of clear ones. This this is an easier one. Just simply. 
You read, Paul says, Ephesians, we're saved by grace through faith. You read James, faith without works is dead. That, the example there, people might say, well, isn't there a contradiction? James is saying works, Paul's saying faith. No, no. The, basically, James is saying, look, no, you're saved by faith, and God knows you're saved. He sees your heart, but human beings, we don't see the heart. We see physical, the evidence. So there's no contradiction. When you read the whole scriptures, you realize, no, we're saved by grace through faith because of Jesus, but, we, but to human beings, we can't see that you're really saved unless you prove it by your good works, that you are truly saved, that your works are as a result of your faith. Does that make sense? So anyway, there's that one. Moving on. Ah. And this is what a lot of cults do. Never, never base teaching on obscure passages where there is no clear consensus. The most famous one is the Mark of the Beast. Man, there are books written about it, you know, articles written about the Mark of the Beast. Do we know what 666 means? No! I mean, there is, there, there is there's, um, symbolism in, in 666 compared to, like, no, 7 is the number of, they say, completion, which kind of represents God. 666 is kind of the falls short of that. But people have, have written books, and, you know, there's the Left Behind series, which I love, and they're good books, but people go crazy on obscure passages of the Bible, which God just didn't give us more, more knowledge for a reason. So don't, don't do that. That one was an easy one. Ah, here's a good one. If a, so if a report is incomplete, it does not mean it is false. And I'll, let me give you an example of that right now. So people can look to the Gospel of Mark. And believe it or not, the earliest, the earliest copies of the Gospel of Mark do not, uh, they actually end at verse 8, with the women leaving the tomb after being told that Jesus rose from the dead. The earliest manuscripts do not include anything past verse 8, and others do. And, and, and if we go by, if we, first of all, if we even go by that, the rest of what is in the later manuscripts does not contradict the rest of Scripture, first of all. It, it backs it up. But, but even, even, so even if Mark did end his gospel at verse 8, so okay, people could say, well, it's incomplete. There's a, we just have, you know, an empty tomb or whatever, but, just because you have an incomplete report there, that doesn't mean that the actual thing is false. You know what I mean? Because you have other eyewitnesses coming out and giving and, and explaining the rest of the story. Sure. <sighs> Can I get some water? I'm sorry. I'm getting a little hot. Thank you, Pastor Jim. Oh, that's okay. Anything? Oh, okay. I thought he was serious. I thought he was serious. Yeah. Yeah. Does anybody have any questions so far while I'm receiving my water on any of these contradiction stuff? So, I know there's like a lot of... Anybody else want water? I know there's a lot of stuff we're going over, but th- this is how detailed this whole contradiction thing is. There's so many more details that you've got to look at, you know, before you just can blatantly say the Bible has contradictions. Here's, here's one that people also say for contradictions of the Scriptures. When you look at Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, there is some difference a little bit. You know, some are exactly the same, but, but when you go back, and I've noticed this too when I go back to the Old Testament passages, there is a little bit of difference in the quotations. But here's the deal. Old Testament quotes in the New Testament don't need to be exact. It doesn't mean there's, a con- there's contradictions. Here's why. This problem is easily solved when you realize that, listen, we have, many, we have many versions of the Bible today, right? 
We, we use the New Living Version. There's the, new, the NIV. There's New King James. There's a contemporary version. You know, the list can goes, goes on and on. But all those versions don't say, don't change the doctrine of Scripture from Bible to Bible. They say the same thing, just they use different wording. You know, making sense. But, and, but they still base it on the original Hebrew and Greek, first of all. I want to clarify that. The only, the only difference is, is, is like the message and the original Living Bible, they're paraphrases. So they, they don't. And they're, they're not bad or nothing, but um, all the Bibles that we use in church, they're based on the, the original uh, language, the Greek and Hebrew. But, um, but in, just as we have different versions of the Bible, um, the New Testament writers had a different version of the Old Testament than the original, than Israel did originally. It was written in Hebrew, but in about one, it was about... 250 BC, the Bible, the Old Testament began to be translated into Greek, and it was completed in 132 BC. What is called the Septuagint version of the Old Testament it was the Greek version of the Old Testament. So, going from the Hebrew to Greek, the words came out a little different, right? The words came out a little different. So, when we get a different, a little bit of a different wording, when the New Testament writers were quoted from the Old Old Testament, that's why there's a, there's some difference. You know, but, but the passage still says the same thing. Do you know what I mean? The passage still says the same thing. So there's not, there's definitely not a contradiction going there. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. Here's the other thing. When, lo- when questioning, the, when looking at the scriptures too. The Bible does not approve of all things it records. And why I say that is people have said there's a major contradiction in the scriptures, or at least we contradict ourselves because, you know, people, you know, people say today, well, the Bible says X, Y, and Z is wrong, but but polygamy is okay. But polygamy is okay. You say you say the Bible says that this is wrong, where there's clear passages on a, a subject, for example, you know. But the Bible, but you, but. You, you know, you're contradicting yourself. You say it should be one man and one woman, and all these great biblical men married more than one woman. David, for example, man, had a ton of wives. Solomon had like 700 wives. I don't even. That's just <laughs> 700. No joke. 700 wives and 300 concubines. A thousand women. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm just being real. This is what the scriptures record. Just for the record, a lot of historians and scholars believe that a lot of those marriages were more contractual than. Act, in other words, like they weren't intimate, all intimate relationships. Like it was more, more signed document stuff than anything. But anyway, the point is that yeah, you had Solomon, you had David, Abraham, a lot of these very godly men having more than than one wife. So, just addressing that issue. So, we do believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God, and that includes even the history it records. But. Just because God, God may show an event in history, doesn't even in his word, doesn't mean he's cool with it. So here's an example. Rahab the prostitute, if, uh, real quick. She saved the Israelite spies in the book of Joshua. And she lied to her superiors when they said, where are the men? And she goes, ah, oh, yeah, they took off a couple hours ago. You might catch them, you know. She saved their lives. Now, God never, never approved. Now, the Bible doesn't, and the scriptures don't commend her for lying they commend her for her faith. That yes, may, that maybe lying, I don't know, like I said, maybe lying wasn't the best thing in that, but her, it was her faith in the Lord that saved her. And, the, and so the Bible shows that with problem, the problems with polygamy. So going back to polygamy for a second, you might not have, well, really we do have passages, especially in the, in the um, when you look at uh, 
Jesus even says, when you look at originally with cre- uh, creation, and um, here's what I'm getting at. The Bible shows major problems with polygamy. So if anyone ever, and I've had, I bring this up because someone has brought that up to me before with polygamy. And the answer is very simple. Look, when you look at every example in the scriptures of polygamy, God does not hesitate to show you the major problems that come along with it. It wasn't God's plan. God did God allow it? Yeah, he did. But it didn't mean he was cool with it. You know, listen, I'm not God, so we could talk to the Lord someday about the, the whole whys and ifs and everything. But the point is, is that no. Yes, the Bible clearly says that X, Y, and Z is uh, you know, may say X, Y, and Z is wrong. But no, the Bible isn't approving of something like polygamy just because it records it. So just because it records a historical event doesn't mean that God was cool with it. Oh, did, that, did that make sense? I know I kind of jumbled through that a little bit. Um, another form of contradiction that people claim. So what you have to consider is a general statement that the scriptures make doesn't necessarily mean it's a universal rule, meaning something that you have to apply all the time. Did I put it up here? No, I didn't. I should have. Let me read it to you. Proverbs 16.7 says this. It says, When people's lives please the Lord, even their enemies are at peace with them. Now, opponents will show, ha-ha, contradiction. Because look at many of the godly men and women in the scriptures that loved and pleased God and Jesus, but they were killed, persecuted. Their enemies were definitely not at peace with them. Okay. Proverbs 16.7 doesn't say, even their enemies are at peace with them all the time in every situation. There would be a contradiction. But no, the scriptures are saying, generally speaking, when you do follow God, he will cause his enemies to be at peace with you. Generally. Not always. Does that make sense? Right. And here's the big one, too. And I talked about this in my message last time. But later revelation supersedes previous revelation. And what I'm talking about is this is the law of Moses. Um, people use this as a huge way of saying there's a contradiction in the scriptures. When going to the animal, why don't we do the animal sacrifices? Why do we worship on Saturday? Why don't we worship on Saturday? Why do we eat pork when the Old Testament says not to? All that kind of stuff. Yes, animal sacrifices. I just allow me briefly to go into this. The animal sacrifices were required by the law of Moses for our sin. But, but here's the deal. Later revelation revealed that, listen, they were only a temporary solution until Jesus came. His sacrifice was enough for everyone for all time. And animal sacrifices, listen, they, they, they could end at that point because the, you know, his sacrifice was the end-all, be-all. And really, animal sacrifices were, were also symbolic to show people they needed a savior. And really, when you go through the Old Testament and go through the festivals and everything, that you find that the festivals and other religious commands were they were later to be revealed. To, they were preparing Israel for Jesus. They were all they all had a, a. You should go through it sometime. I think I listed a couple on here. Did I not? Yes. Oh, Passover. Here's a great example. Passover, for example. Why don't we need to celebrate Passover? I mean, you can. You can do it, but Passover overall was, was getting uh, Israel ready for Jesus. Because if you, it's probably the most famous one you know. When they were freed from Egypt, God said, put lamb's blood on your door. And when I go, I'll pass over your house and I won't kill your firstborn son. We know that that was symbolic of the lamb of God, Jesus shedding his blood for our sins, that his sins 
cover our heart that when God looks at us, he, it, it, it in a way passes over. Pass, even though we might physically die, we don't go to hell. Death passes over us because God doesn't see our sin. He sees the blood of Jesus. And the Bible literally says that we are faultless before the throne of God. So Passover was looking forward to Jesus. And even so, there was, there's other aspects. Um, the um, Pentecost, which we know was the, uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it was called the Festival of Weeks. It was to celebrate the first harvest. Well, here's the cool thing. Here's what it was symbolic of. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, that was the first harvest of Christians. It was all looking forward to Jesus. And, and you could go, there's the festival of trumpets and so other things. Really cool stuff. But, but anyway, all of that kind of stuff was looking forward to, G, to Jesus. There's a great book if you've never read it. I don't know the author, but it's called Jesus on Every Page. You need to read it. It's great. Were you the one, Pastor Jim, who gave it to me, I think? Yeah, great book. I actually have it home. It might even be in our library in the back because I might have donated it. But great book that kind of shows you how the Old Testament even, it was all pointing to Jesus and, and showing you why we don't need to celebrate that stuff anymore. Um, and really, in, here's the deal. Paul, just to, just to kind of... I apologize, I've spent a little more time on this than I want to, but I feel I need to say this. But the Sabbath day, I've heard a lot of people attack us for the Sabbath day. Yes, God commanded his people to honor the seventh day of the week, so why do we worship on the first? Well, first of all, the New Testament records that believers had begun meeting and worshiping on the first day of the week, as recorded in Acts and Paul's letters. Here's what most likely happened. As the church began to grow outside of Judaism and became not just a Jewish thing, but like a world thing, People would meet on the first day of the week. Oh, you do have it. Good. Yeah, it's a great. Yeah, we got it right here. It's a great book. Jesus on every page. But um, so believers were meeting on the first day of the week. That's when Jesus rose from the dead. And so, like, so people would say, "Well, why don't you still honor the Sabbath?" I don't get it. Paul addresses this actually, and 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 you can point people to Colossians, where Paul basically tells everyone, "Listen, don't let anyone condemn you anymore for not following festivals or honoring the Sabbath." Because listen, because really, what happened was Jesus fulfilled all those requirements, all those religious, if you will, I hate to call them religious, but religious requirements, and he kind of frees from that. So there's freedom. Listen, it doesn't matter what day of the wor- you, you worship anymore. It, 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 that was there was a time before Jesus. Yes, God did demand that, but not anymore since the time of Christ. And if you have any other questions about the law of Moses, I touched on it more in a sermon uh, last month, but um, there really is not contradiction. And that did, even these religious laws included the, uh, the way we ate and stuff. Um, I just want to keep moving. For, oh, do you have a question? No. Oh, gotcha. So I wanted just to discuss real quick, discrepancies in the Greek manuscripts. People will when we talk about contradictions, people will talk about the differences in Greek manuscripts. Talking about manuscripts found as early as the 2nd second, second century to 15th century A.D. So, from those ancient manuscripts, there have been found over 400,000 discrepancies or differences. So, that's a lot, right? However, 90% of those 400,000 are simply spelling errors or slips of the pen, so, no, not a big deal. Now, there is 10% that are significant, but this is where critics are claiming contradiction and saying we cannot trust the theology of the New Testament because there is a lot of differences. Well, I have listed for you uh, more than I did last month because, I, once again, I want you guys to see here the differences. I talked about this already. Mark 16, early manuscripts. There's no verses beyond verse 8. The removal of latter... It's a, it's, 
here's what happens. When you remove the rest of the chapter, here's what we're left with. We're left with an empty tomb, angels reclaiming Jesus' risen, women running to tell the disciples. This doesn't mess up anything because, when, once again, when you read the rest of Mark and you collaborate it with the other Gospels and the rest of the, of the Bible, there's no contradiction. And it, the, uh, like I said, if, if the rest of Mark that later manuscripts have, if it contradicted the other Gospel accounts, yeah, we'd have an issue, but they don't. We have other eyewitnesses' account which they collaborate the later manuscript edition. Could Mark have still had it, had the rest of it? Maybe, yeah. We, we don't know for certain, but there's not a contradiction in theology or anything with the, the uh, later editions of the end of Mark. Um, here's another one in case you didn't know it. The first part of John 8. Is anybody familiar with the passage of um, this woman is brought to Jesus, committed adultery, Jesus is silent, he's writing on the ground, and the famous passage, he who is without sin threw the first stone. We've probably heard that, even in, you know. So, believe it or not, the earliest copies of the Gospel of John don't have that account. So, here's the deal. So, is there a contradiction then by having that account in the later manuscripts? Well, here's the deal. When you remove this passage, you still have other scriptures to back up the theology Jesus set for with the throw the first. Jesus' point was this. He wasn't saying she was right. But the point of the whole, the, the point of the account was this. These Jewish leaders didn't care about this. They were just trying to trap Jesus. Because first of all, when someone's committing adultery, usually there's a second person involved. Notice they only brought the woman. The law of Moses required both of them to be stoned. Where was the dude? Just being real. Anyway, so the point is, is that Jesus was saying, he wasn't saying she was raised. Just was, he's, he was like, okay, he was pretty much saying, okay, stoner, but just whoever hasn't sinned, throw it. <laughs> he wasn't saying what she did was right, but he was getting to the heart of, 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 their, of, of, of to their wicked hearts, condemning them really, saying you're, you're so quick to condemn other people, but you don't look at your own hearts. The entire New Testament backs up that sentiment that we should be examining ourselves and looking at ourselves before we judge other people. And once again, there's no solo theology that is born just from that path. That's the other thing. When people try to claim the, uh, say that there's a problem, they're trying to say like there's, this, there's only certain doctrine that comes just from this passage, and that's not true. Okay, the writing that Jesus had. There's no theology in that. Who knows what Jesus wrote? You know what I mean? Silly. Um, now just to get to more, some, some general ones, Mark, Matthew 24, 36, here's a difference. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So here's the difference. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Okay, so the addition of nor the Son Doctrine of the New Testament isn't changed because what was the point of Jesus telling? Jesus was trying. This is all. This passage, the disciples had said, "Hey, when are you coming back? When, when's what's the sign going to be of your return?" The point of Jesus giving this passage right here, guys, no one's going to know. Only the Father knows, and that passage is, is clear in both. With the addition of nor the Son or not or whatever, it doesn't change the theology. Jesus is just saying, guys, no one knows. Only the Father knows. Stop it. Matthew 18, 11. Here's another one. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Other manuscripts, this verse is omitted. Okay. So even if this was added later, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost, does that change any theology of the, of the New Testament? Did Jesus come to save that which was lost? Do we have other passages to back that up? 
Yeah, yeah, we do. Now, I'm not saying this was added later, but I'm just saying that, even, you know, this doesn't change nothing. Here, here's another one. 1 Corinthians 14.38. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, when we, when we say ignorant today, a lot of times when we use the term ignorant, or meaning someone's rude or something like that, the true definition of ignorant and what they're referring to in the first line is someone that they don't have knowledge of something. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they, they don't know something, that they're ignorant, they, 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 they don't know. So in the differences here, you see the similarities, but if anyone is ignorant, and then the second line, but if anyone does not recognize this, they, they, you know what I mean, that they're not getting it? And then he says, let them be ignorant, let them, let them, not, let them, fine, don't, let them not get it. Well, he is not recognized. And that, that, basically they're saying right here that this is a person who, if they're not getting it, well, then they're just not going to get it. They're not recognized by the church. You know, there's no contradiction right here. You're not basing whole theology. Does that make sense? I know I said that really fast. Sorry about that. I talk really fast. Let me see. Do I have another example up here? Ah, cool. So, and I, I want to encourage you of this. Actually, this is really cool. Wikipedia. I like Wikipedia for the most part. I know that, yes, you could edit, but Wikipedia has a ton of these discrepancies on there. I encourage you, go ahead and read them. Because that's why I pulled like these examples from Wikipedia. And they have a ton of these examples on there. And you can go and look more. And, and it'll give you confidence knowing that there's some differences, but it's not, it's not ruining the New Testament. So what I want to get into real quick, if we have to, we'll just continue next week. Because I want to be faithful with our time. We've got about 10 minutes left. Is archaeology. So... We said in the beginning that in order for a document to hold up, it has to pass a couple tests. Number one, it has to show that it does not have any clear contradictions. Scriptures do not have clear contradictions. And the other, other thing is known factual errors. It, it, you know, if, if a document has known factual errors, then that shows that the document uh, has, has issues. Um, like the, the, we talked last week about the Apocrypha books. Many of them had factual errors that could be, back, that could be proven with, from other things in history. Um, so I posted this resource. I don't know if I put this on your page, but this is a resource. This is, um, one, of the, um, this is a web, one of the websites I was using. <laughs> this website is full of great historical archaeology that backs up the scriptures. It's awesome. Um, right here, I don't have them on your page, but I just wanted you to see some, some names these are named scholars who agree archaeology backs up the Bible. When we're talking about archaeology, we're talking about history. The Bible is a historical book that records history. And these are men who say, yeah, you know, that archaeology, what we find in other places, backs up the history that the Bible records. This is a cool one right here. Has anybody ever heard of Sir William Ramsey? Good, I didn't, I didn't either before this study. Um, he was a famous... I said, I guess not famous enough. I, but um, he was a famous, he was a famous 19th century archaeologist and atheist, and he's considered one of the greatest archaeologists in history. He believed, uh, growing up, that Acts was written in the second century, about 150 AD. He was absolutely like, no, Bible, it's just it's not recording history correctly. Well, decades, not weeks, decades of study reversed his opinion. You can look this up. He declared, by his own words, Luke to be an incredible historian and stated that Luke and Acts were written in the mid-first century. 
pretty, it's pretty cool, right? So really what I just want to go with you, through you real quick, this probably won't take real long, but examples of archaeology proving, um, proving the scriptures, and here's some stuff. So obviously this, we know we're from the Christmas story, the reason Joseph and Mary went to uh, Nazareth, or Bethlehem, is for the census. Ancient documents from the time period reveal that Caesar Augustus began censuses in 23 to 22 B.C. and continued every 14 years. The next census that was recorded was around 8 to 9 B.C., very close to the time period um, uh, that people believe that Jesus was born. They believe that the time period that Jesus was born was between like before... Two, eh, I think like between 4 and 8 B.C. And understand this, when a census was given, it wasn't done in like two weeks. It took a long time back then for people to have to travel. I mean, people don't understand. For people, from Joseph and Mary to go from Nazareth and way north Israel to Bethlehem, it was a little bit of time. I don't, it didn't take weeks, but it definitely took days. You know what I mean? And that was the same thing throughout the empire. So these things took a while uh, to do for traveling. So yeah, backs up that there was a census absolutely around the time of Jesus' birth. Now, you might be like, Quirinir... Man, if I, I, mean, I always mess this guy's name. Quirinius, governor of Syria. You might be like, who on earth is that? Okay, well, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke mentions this governor during the census which Jesus was born. But there was a problem. For years and years and years, Josephus, famous Roman, uh, famous Jewish historian, mentioned that this very man was governor of that area in 6 AD, way later than the time of Jesus' birth was believed. However... Fast forward, an inscription was found in Antioch that showed that this man was governor of Syria in around the time of 7 BC. So the conclusion was that he was governor either twice or there was just two men with the same name. You know what I mean? So, no, there wasn't a kind con- archaeology did prove, no, that this guy really was um, governor at this time, around the time of Jesus' um, birth. The Acts 19 riot in Ephesus, if you're not familiar, in Acts 19 it describes this massive riot because it started by these troublemakers who were upset that, that they were losing business in the idol worship. So they started to proclaim about their gods and everything, and the whole city was in an uproar. And it mentions that there was this huge theater in the middle of the city that were, were tons and tons of people. Well, excavations show that there was absolutely a large, I wrote city, theater in the city that could fit 25,000 people, just as the book of Acts describes it, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, here, I love this one. King David, if you don't know, my favorite accounts in all of Scripture, I mean, obviously Jesus is number one, but um, I love King David's stories. I, uh, minusing um, 2 Samuel chapter 11, with, I, that one's not a good one. But the rest of it I kind of like. Um, but at, for many years, people believed King David was a mythological creation, that he did not actually exist. Stone inscriptions found in northern Israel within, I think it was in the last hundred years, I apologize for not knowing the date on that, but stone inscriptions in northern Israel from, written by an Aramean king mentioned in 9th century, he, the, the, the stones from 9th century BC, the king says that he defeated both the Israelites and the Judeahites, and he refers to their king as from the house of David. David was a very, very real and historical man. And by the way, the the the, the inscription 
matches a battle that is referred to in 1 Kings chapter 22. You can look into that, which I thought was very cool. Here's other things. This list can go on and on, but I just want you guys to get the idea. Proof of the Hittites. These are ancient people mentioned in Genesis all the way through 2 Samuel. And actually, um, in the story of David and Bathsheba, her husband, Uriah, was a Hittite. Um, But many people believe that the Hittites didn't exist for a long time. But then, 1906, excavations in Turkey, they discovered the ruins of Hetusas, the ancient Hittite capital proving, once again, that the scriptures were absolutely correct in mentioning these ancient people. They were, they did absolutely exist. And this is very cool. Um, the first non-biblical mention of Israel is, a tw- is in 1230 B.C., an inscription that mentions G- Egypt invading Israel, proving that the Israelites were in the promised land when the scriptures say that they were, which is also very, very cool. And... Here's the other thing. Like I said, let's can go on and on. I might, have, I might have put this on your page or not, but many biblical cities that I have listed up here have been, have been found. At one time, people didn't know if they existed, and many, many others. Here, here, oh, I wrote down here that Nineveh, for years, Nineveh was actually thought to be made up, the ancient capital of the Assyrians. People didn't believe that Nineveh was existed until the 19th century when Nineveh was discovered, just as the scriptures uh, record. And real quick, the Pilate inscription, there's been a few things, but um, inscriptions found in Caesarea that mentions Pontius Pilate was governor and prefect of Judea. And here's one that I, I have to mention this real quick, and, and then we're going to close because uh, I want to be faithful to your time, but this is very cool. So the Nazareth inscription, this is a declaration that they found in, in the late 1800s, they excavated this, this uh, tablet, which recorded a proclamation by a first-century Roman emperor, which don't have concrete proof, but a lot of historians believe it was Claudius, who reigned from 41 to 54 A.D. In it, he says there will be capital punishment, death, to anyone who steals a body for reasons of mischief. And he specifically mentions sepulcher-like tombs. Just for the record, you see it up there? In the ancient world, referring to this time frame, the vast, vast majority of sepulcher tombs were found in one location, Israel. Why would the Roman emperor be so concerned with someone stealing a body for a tomb that he would kill someone over it? Well, like I said, this is, this is a little bit specul- uh, of speculation, but not that far out of reach considering when this is dated. It is very, very well to believe that the story mentioned in Matthew that the Jewish leaders made up to appease Pilate about the disciples stealing the body, which is a bogus story to begin with, because if you're sleeping and the body was stolen, how do you know who stole it? If you were all asleep, how do you know the disciples? How do you know it wasn't some other follower of Jesus or, or some other dude? You know what I mean? How do you know who stole it? It's a ridiculous story. But anyway, and that, that story is real because um, in the early 2nd century, we have church fathers mentioning that story that it was still circulating less than 100 years later. But um, So anyway, it's very reasonable to believe that as Christianity was growing around the empire, this story got to the Roman emperor, and he heard about this Jesus who was this king. That was really what they, what, what did the Romans care about? They cared about that the, the Christians called Jesus king. That's what they, they didn't care about the son of, I mean, they might have a little bit because they, they 
they believed that the emperor was God and they thought it was being unpatriotic to not worship him. But, but in reality, they were upset the title king over Jesus. That's what upset them. And even with Pilate, the only thing that the Jewish leaders could say to him is, uh, well, they, he doesn't like this religious stuff. He says he's king of the Jews. That Pilate cared about because that was insurrection. But anyway, that got to the, probably what happened is it got to the Roman emperor and he was probably freaked out about that. And he's like, yeah. These disciples that stole the body, uh uh-uh, you ain't going to do that. And probably issued this decree that if anybody steals a body from a sepulcher tomb, and and with Israel in mind, you're going to be put to death. Because think about that. Capital punishment for stealing a body? Think about that. I mean, that's, I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe it's just me, but I think that's a little, little insane, you know, when you think about it. Like I said, it is a little more speculative because I said it doesn't mention Jesus. But very interesting, why would the Roman emperor care so much about and it's specifically a type of tomb that really was only found in Israel. Like if you put a percentage on it, it was like 95% of them were found in Israel. It's very, very, have reason to believe that he, found, he heard about the Jewish leader's lie and issued this decree. So we'll stop there. Like I said, there's, other, there's so, what, this is just scratching the surface. If you go online and research, there's tons of archaeological evidence. So here's the deal at the end of the day. And this is my final. Um, is the Bible reliable? Absolutely. Now, like I said, you can choose to not believe that Jesus is the Son of God or whatever, but you can't just dismiss the Bible. It is not filled with errors and contradictions. It is not filled with anyone's just random interpretation of it. No. Listen, the difference, like things like the differences in eyewitness accounts are minor, and they're easily explainable and natural when you have multiple people uh, telling about the same account. Discrepancy in manuscripts do not alter the doctrine, especially on major beliefs. The Bible is very historical. It has captured history very well, and archaeology backs it up. So at the very least, even if you're a skeptic, you have a book that is absolutely filled with a collection of ancient documents that does record history properly, that absolutely what was written, what we have today, was originally what was written. These people really believed this. Like I said, you could choose not to believe it, but the Bible really, when you study the evidence, it's less and less like you can just easily dismiss it.